I actually remember walking out of one office in um, in Larnaca. And I was like, I feel like I just walked out of like a mafia movie or something <laughs> like <laughs> the setting I was in. And then I just went out onto the waterfront, and, like sat down, got a drink. And I was just like, what is my life? Welcome to Badass Digital Nomads, where we're pushing the boundaries of remote work and travel, all while staying grounded with a little bit of old school philosophy, self-development, and business advice from our guests. Hello, hello, Kristen from Traveling with Kristen here, and welcome to episode 70 of the Badass Digital Nomads podcast. Thank you to S. Dweller for the stellar review on Apple, by the way. He says, I've listened to many Digital Nomad podcasts, and this is the best. Every time I listen to one of Kristen's podcasts or watch one of her YouTube videos, I am informed and I learn, period. Fantastic. Please keep it up, Kristen. Thanks, S. Dweller. I will. And thanks also to the anonymous reviewer on Stitcher who says, I've been a digital nomad for years, and this show really captures what it's like and how to achieve that goal. Really great show with real insights from nomads who are actually successful. Thank you so much for listening, reviewing, and sharing this podcast with your friends and family members. It truly means a lot to me. I put so much work, blood, sweat, and tears into this podcast, and I appreciate everybody who's out there listening and supporting. And just on a bit of a personal note before we get started, it has been exactly one month today since my work-from-home burnout experience that I talked about a few episodes ago, so I just wanted to give a little bit of an update. I've been working less and spending more time offline to recover a bit. And I'm definitely feeling better. I've been a bit more absent on social media this month. uh, So I appreciate your patience and getting back to comments and messages and hope to be back full force very soon. But it has also been a big month because I moved into a new house, a new old house (laughs) in an area called Coconut Grove in Miami. That's a really historic area. The houses in my neighborhood, some of them are from like the 1800s and early 1900s. And it's just a really peaceful, tropical, idyllic spot, just a block from the water. And I'm surrounded by sunshine and palm trees and peacocks walking around. And I just feel really grateful and happy to be here and to be safe and healthy. And I hope that you are too, wherever you're listening from. So just wanted to shed some light again on that burnout experience and remind everyone that working from home and living this technologically advanced lifestyle, especially during the pandemic, is a marathon not a sprint. So make sure you take care of yourselves. And I will be doing a house tour and a live stream soon for my Patreon patrons. So if you want to catch that and get more behind the scenes content from me, 
you can uh, sign up as a patron for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash traveling with Kristen. And we have an interview today. So my guest today is Mikkel Thorup. He's the director at escapeartist.com, which some of you may have heard of because it's the oldest and largest offshore website in the world. He's also the host of the Expat Money Show podcast and the author of the book, Expat Secrets. Mikkel has been to more than 104 countries in the last 20 years, and today he specializes in helping people with offshore banking and investing, as well as helping them pay zero taxes, like for real, or acquire a second passport or citizenship. And in this episode, we talk a lot about the expat lifestyle, covering Mikkel's journey from broke backpacker to mega successful entrepreneur. And we also discuss how to travel with no money, how to hitchhike through Central America, how to find jobs abroad, how to meet people in foreign countries. And we talk a lot about the cost of living in different countries, rent and food prices, what the expat lifestyle and quality of life is like in places like Abu Dhabi, Guatemala, Australia, Singapore, and many more places. And we also talk about why Mikkel chose to live in Panama City, Panama, when he could live anywhere, and how much money he spends per month living there for a family of four. We also share our outlooks on why people are leaving the U.S., where the best places would be to live during a possible future apocalypse, and some of our predictions on the future of work. And as usual, all of the resources that we mention will be in the show notes. And if you are part of the remote economy, or you live abroad, or work with people in other countries, or plan to live or bank abroad in the future, then make sure you have a borderless account with TransferWise. It's a cheaper, faster way to send and receive money abroad. I've been using TransferWise for about seven years now, and I have saved probably thousands of dollars on international bank transfer fees uh, over the years with them. And you can too. Plus, support the podcast and get your first transfer for free by signing up for a borderless account with the link in the show notes or by going to travelingwithkristen.com slash transferwise. And without further ado, enjoy today's show. Mikkel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have somebody with your experience on here because we are in a very small group of people with 20 plus years of experience living and working abroad as expats. So welcome. I'm so excited to talk with you. And before the show, I was saying that I've been reading your website for over 10 years. I remember living in Nicaragua in 2008, and it was just international living and escape artist. I don't know if there were any other types of major websites out there for this information. Well, first of all, Kristen, thank you so much for having me because I think this is amazing work that you do. And I'm really excited to, to jump into this and get to know your audience and you know answer any questions you have. Um, yeah, Escape Artist is a legacy brand. I took over the company about a year, year and a half ago, and it has just been amazing. 
we've just been able to reach so many more people and help so many people. I'm super passionate about it. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about all these things today, Krista. Well, let's start at the very beginning because I have, you know, done my research. I've stalked you a little bit online oh. <laughs> and <laughs> learned a bit about your background. And I heard on another podcast, I'm always interested in why people travel and what was the first reason or like the, the way that they kind of caught the travel bug, because I find that everybody has a really specific memory. Like I can remember as far back as elementary school, um, like quote unquote, running away from home, but not because I wanted to run away, but just because I wanted to go explore. And I would like run down the street and climb trees and go in the forest behind my house. And I just always had that kind of wanderlust. And I think like the moment for me was when I was 10 years old on a field trip to the Florida Keys, when I realized that I was exploring by myself around the island and all of my classmates were like homesick mm. and they were at the payphone waiting in line. And I just knew that I was a little bit different and I had this different perspective. And then looking back at your background, um, you said that you were diagnosed with a learning disability in third grade and that you felt uncomfortable or different um, back at home. So I was wondering if that was some of the appeal that travel had for you and the motivation. And if you can kind of like take us back to uh, little Mikkel and what kind <laughs> of planted, what kind of planted that travel bug for you and why do you think you feel more comfortable outside of your home country? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I remember I was in probably, I want to say I was in grade three. And the resource teacher and my teacher and the principal and everyone got together and brought me into a room. I remember being called, pulled out of class and, and called aside and sat down in a room. And it was like um, kind of a, a difficult conversation. You know, you know, I'm a pretty small child at the time. And they come to me and say, Mikkel, Mikkel, something doesn't work quite right in your brain. And um, what we want to do is we want to send you to a special school, um, a special school for special boys just like you. And uh, Kristen, that's exactly what they did. Uh, grades four, five, and six, um, they sent me to a special class, or sorry, to a special school. And uh, every day for three years, I got on a little white bus and I rode the little white bus across town and um, went to this special school. The only problem was it actually was not a special school. It was a special class in a regular school. And you know how children are. They are, can be mean and, and pick on one another and bully and things like this. And because of that, I got in just a ton of fights and I never really felt like I belonged. And I realized at a really young age that um, for me, things were just kind of different. Nothing just fit in. Everybody else seemed to, to fit in, and, it, and I never had this. So like I said, I got into tons of fights and um, picked on. And, and after three years, I was allowed, privileged enough to go back to my neighborhood school and, and join up with my normal class. And I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing. I get to see all my old friends and everybody I used to know, and they're going to be so happy to see me and so excited. But of course, that wasn't the case. You know, kids, they, they gossip and they whisper and, you know, what happened to Mikkel? Oh, Mikkel went to some, some retard school, you know, 1980s, totally politically yeah. correct, oh, yeah. you know, very sensitive human beings, of course, some retard school. 
And so everyone was always whispering and picking on me. And, um, and I didn't like it. I, I, I really hated it. And I hated school in general. And so I started failing and I, I failed grade seven and grade eight. And, you know, I had to go to summer school and then I failed that. And then I got led into high school and did a little bit of high school and started failing that. And then I stopped going. And basically by 12, 13 years old, I just stopped going to school. And at 15, I completely dropped out. I officially dropped out of school. And then a few years after that, like I, st I started basically working and uh, doing different odd jobs to get money. And, and a few years after that, I started traveling. And it's interesting because my father had always told me the greatest thing he ever did in his life was go backpacking through Europe. And I thought, well, you know, if it's the greatest thing you ever did in your life, dad, like, why didn't you dedicate your whole life to it? Like, why didn't you, you know, spend all your time and all your energy? Why'd you only do it for three or four months and then come back to, to Canada, uh, where I'm from? So when I was a teenager, I started traveling internationally and I went to Ireland, England, and Wales the first time. And I really started to see what my father was talking about um, and what he had always spoke about. And so I came back to Canada. I started working again, save a bit more money. And then when I was uh, 19, I went back to Europe and I went uh, all through Western Europe and North Africa. I was in North Africa for two months. So I was gone backpacking for about five months. And I want to say this was in about 2000, 2001, something around there. And I got back to, to London, Ontario, uh, my hometown, and started working at my own job. I think I was there for a week, Kristen, two weeks maximum. I was like, I can't do this. And I went online. Actually, did I go online? Or I think I, maybe I went to a travel agent. I don't even think we could go online to buy flights at that time. I think I went down to the travel agent and bought a ticket out to, to Western Canada for like a week later and then told my family. And they just thought I was like nuts. It was like, you know, you just got back and now you're leaving again. And yeah, that was yeah around 2002, something like that. 2001, 2002. And I mean... It's been nearly 20 years now and I haven't stopped. You know, I just kept traveling and going and going and going. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of a little bit of my backstory, um, how I found traveling and uh, maybe a bit of my, my motivations. I don't know. That's really interesting because I think it shows a good example for people who feel different or who maybe feel like something is missing in their lives because I find that people who travel, like we're all kind of, looking for something or we're just curious about the world or we're trying to find ourselves or we're trying to find where we fit in out of the many, you know, billions of people out there. Mm -hmm. And I think that the answer is that, you know, we're all part of one human race and we're all kind of citizens of the world. And I think that that is why you can travel forever because you find your home where you are and you find your home, like with yourself, you know, with your relationships, mm -hmm. like we're all just interacting with people in different places. And I know that you've been to more than a hundred countries. So it's like the more you travel, the more you realize that everyone is the same. I mean, everyone's a unique person, but people are people and it's just like a different backdrop, a different culture, a different food. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is a way for people who feel like kind of outsiders or misfits to get some solace in knowing that they can fit in in a place that they weren't born necessarily and that they can fit in somewhere that they choose and not just somewhere by default. Absolutely. Well, I can tell you one of the, the main things and the first things I learned when I moved overseas 
was that really there's not just one way to do things. So for me, education was not school. School, like traditional government-run education, was just not for me. It's not how I learn in that environment. And um, it's not the answer for me. It's not that I'm not a learned person. It's not that I'm not educated. Yes, I dropped out of school when I was a teenager, but I'm, and I never went on to college or any of these things that are supposed to be so important. But I don't think you'll ever meet anybody who knows me who says that I'm uneducated. I read more than 100, 110, 120 books a year. I've been doing that for 15, 20 years straight. Like you said, I've traveled to more than 100 countries. I constantly put myself into difficult situations, which help me grow as an individual. Um, yeah, and, I, and to your other point, I mean, where I feel most comfortable is in situations that other people would be scared of. I, I feel good in situations where I have to figure things out and I don't speak the language and I don't know where I'm going to sleep that night or, or what's going to happen or, you know, I, I find that exciting. I don't actually find that scary. The place where I feel very uncomfortable is like when everything is the same for too long. If everything is kind of stagnant, then that's where I'm like, I, I, I want to go explore. I want, I'm curious. I want to go over here. I want to go see something. You know, that for me is, is life. That is my life. And, and I like it. I enjoy this type of lifestyle, I would say. Yeah. I was talking with uh, Zat Rana, who's a writer. He was a big writer on Medium, but he now has a private community. And we were talking about how a lot of people feel like a fish out of water, kind of, when they're when they're traveling, when they're in a new place, especially at the beginning, when it's like their first few countries mm -hmm. and that wears off. So that's what I tell people is like, you're going to become comfortable outside your comfort zone. And that's your new normal. That's your yeah. new comfort zone. And on the other and side, as soon as like, you get comfortable with that, you have to push the envelope a little bit more. And it's just this constant going like a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And that's how you grow. That's unbelievable for me. I love that. Yeah. Without hurting yourself or, you know, getting into <laughs> a really bad situation. But for me, being a fish out of water feels like walking into a corporate office building. Like oh, I feel absolutely. really uncomfortable in, in, in any type of big office park. I'm like, get me out of here. Um, and so it's funny that you kind of came into this by default because I also was, I was diag not diagnosed, but I was in speech classes hmm. starting in third grade and they did the same thing. Like you just made this memory pop up. They like came and pulled me out of class and told me this was also in the eighties mm -hmm. and told me that I was going to go to a special class. And yeah. so half of the week I would be in these like speech classes and other types of uh, classes. Like some of them were more advanced classes, but then somewhere for speech and People made fun of how I said my S's and SH and T's and TH. Like I had problems with certain letters. And here I am with a podcast. So yeah, and a popular <laughs> YouTube channel. Matter. Like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And they told me TV. for I couldn't read, write, and spell that I was a um, a form of dyslexia. And now I'm a published author and a professional blogger and newsletter writer and I run a magazine. I'm an editor at a mag my own magazine. And it's like we'll show yeah. you kind of thing, you know, like you you tell uh, people you told speak, you that you needed to go to a, a speech therapist and now you're a popular podcaster and YouTuber. Amazing. Good for you. Thank you. And and I like really want people listening to take this lesson home because this traditional education system is meant for one thing, and that's to prepare you for the post-industrial workforce. Correct. It's not meant to teach you life skills. 
It's not meant to teach you emotional intelligence. It's not meant to teach you yeah. uh, communication and interrelationship and personal yeah. skills. How or to make travel. money, how to earn money, how to yeah. multiply money, how to save money. How to anything manage it. Yeah, anything finance related. Not how to find a partner or a spouse. Not how to, not even how to get a job. It's just like a, we're going to have you wrote, memorize just a million different facts and figures which are not connected with one another and have nothing to do with the real life. Like, we can have a whole rant on traditional <laughs> education if you like. I am a, I, I have a, a four-year-old daughter and uh, we're unschooling our daughter and I've been talking about homeschooling for 25 years. And I swear to God, when I first started talking about these concepts and about government-run education, people thought I was nuts. Like they thought I was this tinfoil hat, crazy guy. And now when I tell people, I'm like, yeah, we're homeschooling our daughter. They're like, oh, that's better. And everybody just nods their heads. And now look at coronavirus and the whole world has to homeschool their kids. And it's like, they're so far behind. And I'm like, we've been doing it since day one with our child and she's just doing fine, you know? Yeah, I, I think that when things become mainstream, it's like, it should have been mainstream decades ago. Like yeah. remote work was possible 50 years ago. And now people are forced into it. Like, did we need to wait half a century yeah. to adopt remote work? And and yeah, the education system, like when you look at politicians speak on TV, you're like, these are the people who are telling us, you know, what the school curriculum is going to be, or even worse, the lobbyists and the corporations yeah. behind that. And like, how do they know what's best for for you and I, or, or who are you they or to your say, child. yeah, some person in an office who, you know, decides that they're going to write on a piece of paper that this is the law and this is how it should be, um, is going to decide you and your child's future and education. And like, for me, this is so incredibly long, wrong. And especially in countries like ours, like United States and Canada, which are so massively, uh, such massive countries, like they can literally be thousands of miles away. And how someone from Hawaii and someone from Alaska and someone from Florida are all going to need exactly the same things. It's just absolutely beyond me. I just don't think it's right at all. Yeah. And the, and everybody like can take a different path towards what they ultimately want their life to look like. Like for you dropping out of school at 15, I mean, I don't think my parents would have let me do that, but I was also very confused. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until I was almost done with college that I started realizing what I wanted to do. And so it can be a good option for people who want to buy time. And for me, I used it as a way to study abroad two times. Beautiful. <laughs> so like that was my uh, way of going to college and then, you know, coming back and feeling like an outsider again with that reverse culture shock because I had been living abroad and then I come back to Florida and it's like, I, I was like an outsider in my own state and my own country. But yeah, people can, you know, go to school, not go to school. But the the moral of the story is that you probably know what's best for you and your kids compared to like some sort of institution, especially run by people who maybe have never been out of the country or don't have the kind of worldview or life experience that you identify with. And so, oh, yeah, whether whether or not you drop out or have a learning disability or whatever. I mean, and you were, so you had this dyslexia type of thing. And now how many languages do you speak? Well, I only speak two languages, maybe two and a half. Chinese is a, a work in progress, you could say. 
Um, so is so is my Spanish. I mean, I'm I'm pretty mm-hmm. fluent, but I mean, I'm not perfect by any means. I spent a lot of my time when I was living overseas, though, in English-speaking countries. So I'm not one of these amazing polyglot language learners. Um, although I have found a passion for it in the last couple of years. Um, my wife is from mainland China, and in our house every day is English, Spanish, and Chinese. That is like at the dinner table, and all conversations are in three languages. And languages are important to us. Uh, my wife also speaks Korean. So we're going to think about a fourth language for my daughter. Like she can already read and write Chinese at four years old. And um, I, I think that I think that it's an important thing. And I'm happy that I'm finding a passion for it now. Um, I'm not too worried that I didn't find a passion for it 20 years ago. It wasn't needed at that time. Like, I mean, I lived in Australia for three years and a year in New Zealand, a year in Singapore and eight years in the Middle East. English, 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 all English, mm-hmm. you know? Well, that's a great point because people are always asking me, like, do I need to learn Spanish? Like, do I need to learn the language when I travel? And it's a nice gesture and it does make life easier. But um, I think people would be surprised to learn that they don't really have to if they speak English Mm -hmm. because it's just spoken so widely now. And now we have translation apps and things that, you know, we didn't have before. So, but what would your tip okay. be for, for learning a my, language. This is my recommendation. Well, I can give you a tip for learning a language, but I can also give you a tip first. Um, if you want to travel and you do not speak a second language, don't use that as, a, that as an excuse not to go and travel. Don't think like, oh, because I don't speak French, therefore I can't go to France. No, mm-hmm. go to France. If you do speak French, then that's excellent. I'm super happy for you and you're going to have an even greater time. But never use this as an excuse. Same type of thing. Oh, I don't have enough money to travel. Well, it's all about sacrifices. Everything in the world is about sacrifice. When I started hitchhiking and backpacking through Central and South America when I was 20 or 19 or whatever, um, I had almost nothing. Like I just had, I had a big red backpack, a tent, a jar of peanut butter, and I hitchhiked for 18 months through Central and South America. I mean, try going to El Salvador in 2002. by yourself, you know, a skinny kid. I wasn't going to let money stand in the way of doing what I wanted to do. And I didn't let not speaking Spanish stand in the way of what I wanted to do. So, I mean, if you have a goal or a dream, you can do it. There is a possibility. And if you can't do it, probably you're just making an excuse. So that's kind of my tip for people who are thinking about doing something, but are not sure whether it's possible. My Um, friend Richie Norton talks about that a lot. He's like, don't wait to start the life that you want, like start living the life you want now and then find ways to make an income to support your lifestyle the way it is. And um, I want to talk about some of your tips for offshore investing and banking and things like that first, uh, um, next. But first, I wanted to touch a little bit on some of your older travel stories because I think I've never really hitchhiked that much. I guess being a girl, maybe I was afraid, but how did you fund your trips as like a teenager and, you know, for the first couple of years, uh, hitchhiking and backpacking around? And then how did you start making money after that? Because I, I find it very interesting to learn how people make money in different countries because a lot of people start with like teaching English or mm-hmm. or being an au pair or something like that. So yeah, how did that trajectory go 
start to where you felt like you didn't have to go back home to get a quote unquote real job that you could keep going and keep sustaining this lifestyle? So good question. Um, I've kind of done any anything and everything. Uh, when I started working, I was 12 years old and I started working in farms. And I remember I was pulling the ragweed out of bean fields. And sure enough, I'm allergic to ragweed. So I get these giant like hives all over my arms. And all summer long for eight hours a day, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I'd be pulling the weeds out of bean fields. Um, it was a horrible job, but I wanted to get money. And, you know, we were not a rich family by any means, by any stretch of the imagination. So anything and everything that I always wanted, I had to pay for myself. Um, after that, I started working in a grocery store back in Canada when I was 16. That's kind of where I started saving up money and getting uh, money to start traveling. Then when I actually started going abroad, um, I did have a, a previous career that I worked in that I won't get too much into right now. But um, I worked in a lot of the countries. Like I worked in Australia for three years. I worked in New Zealand and Singapore and things like that. Um, but I first started being an entrepreneur probably about seven years ago, I want to say. And tried many different businesses. Um, I used to be really huge into the fitness industry. So I went everything from trying to open a gym to opening a clothing brand to doing, uh, I wanted to compete internationally and professionally in men's fitness. Um, I used to be at a very high level. I, I ended up uh, hurting my back. So I, I ended up stopping that a while ago. But I mean, I failed and screwed up and wasted money and <laughs> just made so many mistakes along the way. And then when I started working in the offshore, it was interesting because, I mean, I, I also get interviewed all the time on libertarian podcasts. And I think that my story is also ties into how I became a libertarian. But I feel like I was doing all of this stuff already. I already hated taxes and didn't believe in it and thought it was atrocious. I already didn't believe in state-run education because of my background and my style of learning. Um, I've always been into alternative medicine and an alternative health and looking at things at a more holistic manner. I was kind of like anti-everything anti for like what, what everybody else is into. And I started taking a lot of this knowledge and finding that I was already an expert in many of the things that are needed to be an expert in the offshore space. I already had an offshore company. I already did offshore banking. I had already lived in uh, probably at that time, seven countries. Now I've lived in eight countries. Um, I had to do the visas and second residencies and all of these types of things. So then when it came time to actually start studying this thing, and I mean studying on my own, not studying with a university, um, I already had a lot of the pieces in place. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then my way of studying is... Um, I'm really good at making friendships, actually. I'm really good at making relationships. So a lot of the things that I learned is because, you know, I have like at least 100 friends who are all lawyers, who I talk to them. And some of my big mentors are asset protection lawyers or ambassadors for other countries or um, offshore bankers, private bankers. So I'm like, okay, so how would you do this? What, what would you do with this? And then I ask them their advice and, you know, maybe I'll share some of my knowledge from the marketing side or from the writing side, which I would say my background really is digital marketing. And then my niche is the offshore space. That's what I'm mm -hmm. passionate about and know, but my background is really digital marketing. 
I know that's kind of a lot of stuff I just threw at you all. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that makes sense. So were the jobs that you had when you were living in these other like seven or eight countries, were those in marketing? Like, were you applying for physical, physically, no, I've always geographically been the located? No, I've, do, I've done the entrepreneur marketing side, digital content, um, copywriting. I did a lot of copywriting, those types of positions. So you were always working remotely, even though like you were based in another country, but you weren't working in an office. You were working correct, online. Correct. correct. Okay. Or I would have a full-time job and then I would stay up and work another six, eight hours a night. There's one. Many times in my life, I was working 16-hour days. Even these days, I, I do a yeah. lot of 16. It, although a skate artist is my 100% focus, I mean, I've never shied away from a honest day's work, as they say. Well, I know that you are living in the Middle East, in Abu Dhabi. So... I'm curious between 2002 and like in the last seven years when you've been running Escape Artist, what was your cost of living budget during that time? And what were the countries that you were living in? Because I know when I, I spent about eight years in Central America and I had a car mm -hmm. and like a professional life and my like max that I would ever spend was like 2,500 a month. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm curious, like how much were you, cause people always are shocked by that. They're like, what? Oh, yeah. Cause you know, they live in the U S or Canada and their, their monthly budget is like massive. And I'm like, yeah, I was just traveling full time through different countries on like 2000 a month, 2,500 a month. And they're like, oh, wow, I guess I don't need that much money to travel. Mm -hmm. Well, so when I was in the first country I lived in, uh, was probably Guatemala. Um, I was there for five months and I was probably spending about 10 us dollars a day. Now this is back in, um, 2002 or so. So, I mean, I'm sure the prices have changed quite a bit then, but I lived with a local family. Um, I ate meals with, uh, with, with the locals there and, you know, had a couple of beers at night and took a tuk-tuk and went sightseeing and coffee plantations and visit the volcanoes. And I lived on Lago Atelan in San Marcos and uh, at a meditation center for a couple of months and just did esoteric studies and all kinds of random things you do when you're in your 20s. And yeah, I, I couldn't have spent more than $10, $12 a day. We live parallel lives, I swear. I like know. my friend has an esoteric podcast and I would be like at his house in Costa Rica talking about these things and taking like supplements and vitamins and juice fasting and all these meditation well, It's so classes. funny because before we started uh, recording today, I'm like, Kristen, I feel like we should already be best friends. Like, how did we not run into each other like in the last 20 years of being abroad and traveling? And we I didn't have internet half the time <laughs> back in the day. Like, I oh, didn't yeah. even have electricity. No doubt. I remember when I first started traveling, I was using a film camera. Digital cameras were not a thing. I think I, there was, we did have internet. Definitely we had, had internet. But I mean, no laptops or anything like that. Like, it was go to an internet cafe once a month or twice a month, sit down and like write your folks or actually, I think I had a blogger account or something and would post comments from my trips back then. And then my family would log on to read what was going on about me. That and postcards, of course. Oh, yeah. Postcards. God, it's um, crazy how much has changed. So, okay. So you were living in $10, $12 a day. And then as you're income went up? Yeah. Did your cost of living go up? And kind of fill in the gap between Guatemala and moving to Abu Dhabi. Okay. Let's see if I can do this in a reasonable amount of time. 
After that, I was in New Zealand. I did a working holiday visa. I showed up in Auckland with uh, about $54, $56 in my wallet. My brother, who came to meet me there, who's three years younger than me, was supposed to uh, have some money. He had been working the last couple of months, but then got into poker and ended up blowing all his money <laughs> within like a month of living for New Zealand. So we both showed up in New Zealand with like nothing. We used our last little bit of money and we took a one-way bus ticket to Paihia, to the north of the North Island. And we did uh, working at a youth hostel. So there was eight of us living in a six-bed dormitory. And for every day, for three hours a day, we would make beds. And that's how we got to stay for free. And with that, we were provided one meal. From there, we started working at like the bar and random jobs, you know, any type of hospitality jobs. So we did that for a while. And then I lived all over New Zealand in Auckland, not in Auckland, in Wellington and in Queenstown. They wanted me to stay on the company I was with at the time, offered to pay for my visa and extend it. But I said, no, thank you. Although New Zealand is a beautiful place. 365 days was plenty of time for me. And I moved to Melbourne, Australia. In Melbourne, I started at some pretty crappy jobs and then progressively made more money to a point where I could not spend all the money that I had. Um, we were going out for degustation uh, menu, like 10 course dinners with fresh shaved truffles and matching wine and stuff. And I'm like 25 or something like that. And it was just hilarious. Like it was just ridiculous. The cost of living at that time was so low in response to what I was making it was just unbelievable. And I, I just had an amazing time there. Such, such amazing food and people and just lifestyle. I, I really felt like, at least at that time, Australians really had things figured out. There was this cafe culture. So Australia will forever be like a really special place in my heart. Then, as you do, um, I met a girl, of course, and I followed her to Singapore. So I got rid of my house, uh, all my furniture, quit my job, and moved to Singapore. And I was in Singapore for one year. I showed up in Singapore with no job, no visa, and just a couple of suitcases, and tried to get sponsored by someone. Well, it turns out that's really difficult in Singapore. So I spent 10 months looking for work, going through the better part of my savings, found work. Uh, I worked for uh, the largest property developer in, uh, in Southeast Asia at the time and hated it. And within two months quit and then moved to Halifax. We moved back to Canada with my, my ex, then, then girlfriend. And then we spent, she oh, this is such random. You're, you're getting me to pull up all the random stories, Chris. Yes. This is super random. This is not like my usual episodes. I uh, love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys have heard me on other shows, you'll know that we talk a lot more uh, business or entrepreneur stuff. All right, let me think. I was in Halifax for probably two or three months. And then my ex had lived in Greenland for a stint and then wanted me to know what it was like to live in the Arctic. So she applied for a job for me in Iqaluit, which is right around the Arctic Circle in the Canadian high north. I spent 366 days there. And in my, pa in my free time, I used to volunteer at the crisis line. So I don't know if you, any of your listeners have spent much time in the Arctic, but it is a beautiful place, but it is not a very happy place. So I basically worked at the suicide hotline while I was there. 
and uh, and this was this was volunteer. This wasn't my job. This is my volunteer, my free time. Um, and I think that kind of helped develop my empathy skills and my learning ability. But some of the stories, Kristen, were brutal. It was like we would get, like I remember one in particular. This young girl uh, called in, and it was like, um, my mother just committed suicide because my brother committed suicide, and my father is an alcoholic. And now, basically, I'm responsible for taking care of my two youngest siblings, who are like ten and twelve, or some like some like really really young age. What do I do? And you're oh like, oh my god. I'm like, oh my god. First of all, my heart is breaking. And second of all, it's like, what do you say to someone like this? So just trying to talk to them and listen, and just trying to be there. So, like I said. The Arctic was a beautiful place, and I'm very grateful for my time there. It was not a happy experience. And uh, after that, I, um, I had to leave. Like I, I did my, my one-year contract, and I got uh, like isolation pay and all these types of things. And, um, and then I was back in my hometown for a little bit. My father got sick, so I helped uh, care for him while he was going through cancer. Um, and then I got offered a really high position in Abu Dhabi and they offered to fly me out for an interview. So they flew me out for a week and put me up and uh, I accepted a position there and uh, I worked there for, for quite a while. And um, yeah, where else? I lived in um, Los Angeles for a little while as well. That was like kind of work under the table. Um, I'm missing a couple of places. I lived in Canadian Rockies in the ski resorts when I was 20 something, kind of being a ski bum. Lots of random experiences. Love that. I would love to go live in the Canadian Rockies. Oh, you should. <laughs> so amazing. Oh. Mountain biking all summer, skiing all winter, drinking every single night. I mean, it was, as a 20 year old, that's, that was the best. It's the best. It, it's funny the set of problems that you have as an expat compared to the ones that you have in like the traditional lifestyle. Because like my friends were all in these super high stress corporate jobs after college and they were sitting in Orlando rush hour. And I was like trying to explain to people at my real estate office, because there was a bar upstairs that I couldn't take shots of Jaeger because I was working. Like I wasn't on <laughs> vacation. <laughs> and then, you know, and like my four-wheeler broke down once between Nosara and Tamarindo on a dirt road. And this was before iPhones. And it's like, you have like all these different types of problems, um, but they're all character building. And what sticks out to me about your stories is that you figured it out as you went along. Oh, like yeah. there's no way you could have planned any of that. You couldn't plan like that you were going to end up working on the suicide hotline in Antarctic in the, in the Arctic or that you were going to meet your girlfriend in Australia and move to Singapore. But it's mm -hmm. like, you are just responding to events that were happening in your life and you yeah. are making decisions based on the information that you had Correct. and that you wouldn't be where you are today without Correct. doing all and of that. And it's so easy to look back and kind of like connect the dots. Like I can look back, as I said earlier, and be like, I've been a libertarian since I was 12 years old. I was a libertarian before I knew what the word libertarian means. You know, I was, I was anti-education and anti-government run schools because I saw what happened to myself. Now it's like, okay, things make sense. Now I'm like, wow, I'm so proud of myself that I dropped out of school when I was a teenager. This is the greatest thing I ever did. 
I'm not embarrassed about that. I'm not ashamed of that. I think that's amazing. I'm so happy for that. Um, you know, everything's kind of fit together. I met my, an another quick story. I remember um, I was going to Germany and I was sat next to this, uh, this really beautiful girl and we started talking and she was from mainland China. And, you know, we both happened to live in Abu Dhabi at the time. And so we exchanged numbers. We started spending time together and um, we both really wanted to have a family and we fell in love. And, you know, so, so I married her and I mean, I'm Canadian with Danish roots. She's from mainland China. We both lived in Abu Dhabi. We met on a flight to Germany. We got married in the Seychelles. My daughter was born in Abu Dhabi. And then 15 months ago, 14 months ago, we moved to Panama City, Panama. I mean, like, how <laughs> would I ever know that was going to happen? Like, that is pretty non-traditional, the way that relationships come together. But I mean, I love my wife to death. Like, I never would have found her in any other way if I hadn't been there. Like, and I, I don't know. I just, I just think that's cool. I just think that's yeah. really neat. My friend met her husband on a flight. So she's from France and she went to Monaco on vacation and then ended up working for a billionaire and got a job there. Like, you know, she's European, so she could work legally <laughs> there. And then she met her future husband on a flight to like London or something like mm -hmm, that. And I think mm -hmm. he was playing a poker tournament there at the casino in Monaco. And now like they have two kids and I met her in Vegas. And then we went on a road trip together through France, through the South of France and the I wine country. And it's like, it. that's the kind of stuff like you're just <laughs> in the right place at the wrong time. Sometimes you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, which I actually kind of wanted to ask you about that too, because travel can seem very glorious and glamorous and like you met your wife and everything worked out but well, I, I don't I don't want travel to come across as glamorous because it certainly is not like I haven't been on vacation for 20 years right travel I mean especially especially when you have no money it's really like not easy it's really difficult or or you have a young child with you my daughter's already right. been to 12 countries okay at four years old um I remember last time we, before this pandemic, we took her back to China. We've been, she's been to China a half a dozen times. I've been almost 30 times, I think, to China. Um, it was like 56 hours or 57 hours to go from Panama to our final destination in China with a three-year-old, three-year-old, three-year-old at the time in tow. Like, that's not easy. Like, that's not no. easy at all. And when I was single, I used to travel business class everywhere, which was awesome. But I mean, when there's three of you, or my mother lives with us as well, so sometimes four of us, bang for four business class tickets, that can get a little bit pricey. Sometimes mm -hmm. we do it, but it's not all the time. Before, okay, if it was just me, yeah, maybe I, I spring and I, I fly business class all the time. But Can you say what your say. job was in Abu Dhabi or where you were working there? Or is it classified? Classified information. <laughs> classified information. I love that. That just adds to the to the drama of it, but um, that's cool. Um, so you're in Abu Dhabi. Tell us a little bit about what is the lifestyle like there? And then why did you choose Panama out of all of the places you've been, some of them 30 times in 104 countries? Yeah. And you, with your knowledge of like the financial and tax side of things, um, I would love to know like what the lifestyle was like in Abu Dhabi and then why you chose Panama out of everywhere else that you could live. 
Okay, so this is a great question, and there are multiple answers for this. It's not just a one one piece, but I'll, I'll give you a couple couple of things. First of all, I loved my time in the Middle East. Let me get that straight right off the bat. It was beautiful there. I loved being in an expat community where everybody I knew was from a different country. You have to understand, in the UAE, 90% of the workforce are expats. So to be an expat, you are the normal. If you're a local, you're the weird one. You're the, you're the oddball out, okay? Um, I did have local friends. I was fortunate. But the majority of my friends were from other countries. I also, and we didn't get too much into this, but I practiced the hub and spoke model. And I kind of coined this term myself. I use where I live as the base. And from there, I travel out to the other countries. So while I lived in Abu Dhabi, I went to Oman and Kuwait and Bahrain and Iran. Um, I went to Iran for two weeks by myself. I went to places in North Africa and, you know, all these places which were really, really close. So for that, it was amazing. It's kind of difficult to go to, like you're not going to go to Kuwait from Miami for a four days vacation. Yeah. Like it's just totally, like you just would never do that. But from Abu Dhabi, you know, it's a 45 minute or a 60 minute flight. Um, like it's nothing. Like we, we'd go to places for a long weekend. Same thing I, when I lived in uh, Australia, it was six, seven hours to go to Fiji. I went to Fiji five times when I lived in Australia. That was super easy. If I lived in Canada, go to Fiji, it'd be like a three-day trip. That'd be brutal. I would never do that. I went there too, but it still took us like 24 hours to get there because we had like five layovers, oh, I think, but uh, cheap flights. But there yeah, that, that hub and spoke model, that is a good argument for the slow travel lifestyle that I proposed and that I have my t-shirts and teespring that say slow travel because you get the benefit of getting to know the culture intimately where you're living, Correct. making friends there, getting to know people, having like a kind of a normal lifestyle, but then you can hop on a flight and go to these other countries that you would normally be an ocean away from Correct. and have like a cool experience there and then come back home. Yeah. Well, they've done this with so many countries. And then I have lots of favorite places. I love Germany. I've been to Germany 20, 30 times. I've been to Switzerland 20, 30 times. Um, I've been to Korea like countless times. I used to go multiple times a month to Korea. Wow. Uh, my best friend from Canada lives there. My, my child's godfather lives there. So we used to go all the time. Um, where else have I been multiple times? Japan, probably 10 times, 15 times, maybe 12 times to now, probably 15 times to Japan. Um, I've been to and the how States you... 20, 30 times, you know, and that's from Abu Dhabi or from living in Asia, not from, not just from Canada. I mean, tons of places over. How do you like blend in there? Because I know a lot of people are afraid of like looking obviously like a tourist or like a foreigner or an outsider. How do you just kind of like, I don't know. I'm just kind of me. In. Like I just kind of, I'm just me and I'm not really worried about anything like that. I just kind of live my life and wear my normal clothes and my normal stuff. You know, I started with a backpack and now I have a suitcase and you know, <laughs> I never really think about anything like that. I'm not into any of the special travel gear. I'm not into, this is just my normal everyday life. So I, I use normal everyday everything. Um, and then Minimalist, I, sorry. libertarian traveler. Yeah. Love internationalist. it. Internationalist. Uh, and then to, sorry, to go back and answer a couple of your other points. Um, the reason that I left the Middle East was because when I first came in, 
there were like literally parades in the street that there were these amazing, talented, highly educated expats who were coming in to build the country. And that country changed and grew so much in the eight years that I was there. Like where I ended up living didn't even exist. Like it was just pure desert when I first wow. got there. And then when I left, it was like trees everywhere. They, they built islands. They just, they high rises and uh, amusement parks and just like, like this is just crazy. But the bottom fell out of oil several years ago. And the country really started to change. They really couldn't afford expensive expats like me. So they started replacing people like us with people from uh, developing countries. And the mindset or the, the vibe, if you will, changed in the streets. And I didn't feel as welcome as I once did. Add to that that um, I'm very anti-war. And at the time, and maybe still now, I'm not sure, it really looked like the U.S. was gearing up to invade Iran. And they had brought armadas into the Persian Gulf or the Arab Gulf, depending on who you speak to, um, the Arabian Gulf. But um, I didn't like that. And the UAE has a, a base there as well. So I was afraid that they would use that as, a, that as a staging ground. I also didn't like what was happening in the world economy. I felt like the stock market was completely overblown that we were going to see a giant recession and a pullback. And I really felt like we just needed, you know, that straw that was going to break the camel's back. Now, you have to understand, in the Middle East, there is no fresh water. Zero. Nada. Nalt. Mm. So everything is desalination. So if the power plants went down, they can't run the desalination, which means they can't purify the water, which means you can't drink anything. And it's like plus 55, plus 56 degrees centigrade in the summertime. So you cook. You can't exist with no air conditioning there. In the summertime, you have to have air conditioning. So those are two points. Third, they don't grow hardly any of their own food there. In Alain, they have some, um, some indoor chickens and some indoor cows for milking, which is kind of creepy and weird. Um, and then they have some like organic microgreens that they grow. But for all intensive purposes, um, if the ports had closed people would starve. Like there's nothing there. So That's we wanted scary. to be, it is super scary. It's super scary. And when you think, okay, possible war coming, we're going to see a massive recession and a massive uh, depression. And you guys can't produce anything yourselves. And the only money that you really get is from oil and oil. You built your economy on a hundred dollar barrel of oil. And it was sitting at like $30 or $35. That's some scary stuff. But it's like, okay, Panama, we have tons of fresh water here. It rains almost every day for the better part of like, say, nine months of the year, eight months of the year. You can grow anything here. It's volcanic soil. Um, there's sun every day. You can have solar. You can. So like I have a, a mild streak of prepper in me where I like I believe in personal responsibility is really what it yeah. is. Yeah. You know, so. That was important to me. So when I started looking for a country that I would be feel safe in, those were all things that I was looking for. So Panama kind of ticked all those boxes. Which city are you in? Are you in Panama, Panama City? City? Panama City. I'm. I love. I love being in the city, um, for all the amenities that it has. Right now in quarantine, I don't get to enjoy any of the those amenities. So I wish I was out in the countryside. But I have a forty seven hundred square foot, two story penthouse apartment, uh, overlooking the ocean. I mean, 
like life is good here and very cheap, very affordable, yeah. you could say. I would never it's, be able to afford this in the UAE. It's one of the most expensive places ever. But what is, um, you don't have to share like your exact rent or anything, but like what is a cost of living for a family, like a couple or a family of three, like an expat couple in okay. Panama City right now? Because I haven't been there since 2012 or something. We live a very nice life. Uh, I have a full-time assistant. I... We don't do our own cleaning or anything like that. Um, we eat pretty much solely organic food. We have all of our stuff delivered, organic eggs, organic meats, organic fish. Um, you know, none of this farm-raised stuff. We eat really, really well. Um, we do anything and everything we want. And I would guess we spend $4,000, $5,000 a month. Mm -hmm. And we're a family of four. and I mean, like you don't even have to think about money here. Like it's just yeah. like in the UAE for a one bedroom apartment, you're going to spend maybe two and a half thousand dollars. And for here, you could probably get like a three bedroom house or something or a four bedroom house for much less than that. So it's not yeah, economies of scale. For preppers, like I've thought about this. So my best friend, I mean, I lived in Costa Rica for a long time. And one of my best friends, I remember we went to... um we went to Machu Picchu on yeah. in December of 2012 when it was like the end of the, you know, the Mayan calendar. And we were at Machu Picchu on New Year's Day in 2013. And we would talk about like what we would do if it was the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And we would stay in Central America, like yeah. going to Central or South America, you have water unlimited, you have solar unlimited, mm -hmm. you have a low cost of living and you have agriculture, exactly. you have a lot of mobility. And so for people who are looking for a place like that, like really you can't go wrong in Central America exactly. um, or South America is more community, expensive. Strong but... sense of family. I've made so many friends here. I have my own group of friends who are all libertarians, who are all um, locals and expats. Um, learning Spanish is super easy. It's probably the easiest first for the easiest language to learn as a native English speaker. Um, like I can't say enough good things about it. It's just, these, yeah. this quarantine is, is, is the hard part right now. That's why I haven't gone anywhere this year because I feel like after so many years of traveling, I'm like, I don't want to go fly somewhere to just be quarantined. I'll just exactly. be quarantined in Miami. And it's actually been a nice little vacation mm. from traveling. Um, but since I don't have, you know, a family or anything, I'm more flexible, I guess. But yeah, like when people ask me, cause I do a lot of relocations and rental property searches, and I honestly never do a rental over like $3,000 a month in Central America. And that's for like a three bedroom penthouse with an ocean view or whatever. And so when exactly. you think about here in Miami, downtown, you can get a one bedroom for yeah. like 3,500 a month or something. And it's like your whole, like the highest end of the food chain when it comes to housing and cost of living is still going to be average uh, in the US or Canada. Like, I mean, in the US, you could spend a thousand or two thousand dollars just on health insurance per month if you have a family. I I so had a, I had a conversation with someone. I was on their podcast or they were on my podcast, uh, the Expat Money Show. I'm not sure which one. 
and he was telling me his insurance bill and it was like two and a half thousand dollars a month for health insurance. I'm like, we're fully insured. We have platinum level, the best of everything, all the add-ons, everything like that. And I mean, I think we pay $500 a month. And I mean, yeah. and that's international, worldwide, covers the whole family, everywhere, everything. And it's 500 bucks. I'm like, this is nuts. <laughs> yeah, when I was traveling full time, I would spend like $800 a year at the beginning. Now it's around $1,200 a year. But I refuse to pay. Like for me, for one person, it's $350 a month in the US. And I'm like, I'm not even going to pay that because <laughs> I just don't believe in that. And I've lived in other countries where I paid out of pocket yeah, or I, I had paid, my I insurance. And I'm like, ah. Oh, I've done both. I've had platinum level packages and I've played out of pocket. And, you know, we've had some pretty big things happen that we've had to pay for, but it's still, you know, I, it still hasn't broke the bank. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of done all and I've done a lot of things. Not everything it, is smart. I'm not, not going to pretend I have all the answers. If you're listening to this and you haven't had that lifestyle yet where you have a, um, I guess like services, cheap services, regardless of which country you're in, then I recommend you go somewhere because I still, even though I haven't lived in Central America for probably like five years now or more, I really miss having like a full-time cook and maid or people to run errands, like messengers, sure. helpers, drivers, yeah. like my driver costs $200 a month Amazing. in Nicaragua. And I mean, that was a long time ago, but yeah, like just having all of those, I didn't do laundry for 10 years. Let's put oh, it yeah. that way. And like, for sure. I had for so sure. much extra time, but now, you and know, then, when I'm in the States, I have to do it. Well, and I think that that's an important part because people need to understand that in entrepreneurship, in any type of business that you do, really the way, well, one of the main ways that you can grow your income is focus on the one or two things that actually make you the most amount of money and get rid of anything and everything else. So if you figure out that your um, hourly wage is worth, you know, $200 an hour or $300 an hour, then that's all you should do. You shouldn't cook your own food. You shouldn't clean your toilet. You shouldn't go grocery shopping. You shouldn't do anything. Unless you actually enjoy it and it's, you know, something that's fun for you, you know, get rid of all of that stuff. Outsource it to someone else and just focus on those things. You do that and I mean, you'll 10x your income within... 12 months, 18 months. like, And in Central and South America, it's so easy. People will work here. They'll work hard and they'll be very loyal and very grateful for the opportunity to work. I pay my assistant more than double which anybody else pays. But for me, it's worthwhile. For me, like, yeah, I could get someone cheaper or I could get something cheaper, but I'm happy to pay him because I don't have to stress them. I don't have to worry about these. Yeah. I don't run errands. I, I don't need to go to the mailbox or I don't need to go in. I needed to buy a new phone recently. I had him go to the store and research and find and negotiate. And then they went and picked it up and delivered it. And I went downstairs. I signed for it, paid for it and came back upstairs. It was like five minutes of my time. I don't want to yeah. find out how to do all this crap. No, I want to I do cool podcasts like yours and talk to interesting people and write books and stuff. That's, that's for me, my one thing that grows my income. Yeah, definitely. And this is, it, it's, it might sound like kind of bougie to people, but it's, it's like normal life. And what we need yeah. to do is unlearn and eliminate that 
like old programming because people don't, they think that they have to like wait until they're retired or be super rich, like a millionaire to be able to have that type of uh, freedom and that type of quality of life. And it's just not true. Like I've had that kind of quality of life since I was living on $1,500 a month, you know, sure. in like Mexico or something, wash, dry, fold. Like even if I didn't have a maid doing it in my house, like I could just drop it or have free delivery. They yeah. come pick up your laundry, go do it, come back. It's $5. They did like three loads of laundry for me and it's all folded and like ironed and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I was paying about 20 to $30 a day for like eight hours for someone to help me with whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And then I would, for people who had like live-in help, it was between four and $500 a month plus like room and board. I don't know if that's still- That's pretty in line right. with Panama. Anywhere yeah. about, anywhere from 400 to $500 a month if you provide the accommodation and the food, and usually the maid will eat the same food as you guys eat. Mm -hmm. Um that's pretty set normal. And that's for a cleaner or a helper or a, um, a nanny. Um, raising our child is the one thing that we did want to do ourselves. So we don't have a nanny. My, my mother and my wife uh, primarily take care of my daughter. Of course, I'm, I work from home, so I'm here at all times. Yeah. But, and, but my friends, I have a really good friends who are Russian, and they have uh, a nanny, a cleaner, and a driver. They have three people that work for them full time. And the driver just drives the kids around to karate and dance and um, all these extracurricular stuff and just helps organize that. And I mean, they can get so much work done. And then when they do have the kids, they spend quality time with them. And it's not so stressed. And it's like, just the standard of living just goes up so much more. If you can figure out how to earn US dollars, British pounds, euros, things like this, and then live in a cheaper country. Um, and you're super welcome here. They want you here. They want the work. You're not taking advantage of them. Don't worry about any of these leftist ideas where you're, um, you're taking advantage of the poor people. It's not the case. This is free market enterprise. They want to work. You want to pay. It's a good system. It works. <laughs> yeah. And you are saying that... Um you know, or we were talking before the we started recording that there's been this big uptick in interest from people from especially the U.S. where we're suffering more from the pandemic. But there's this combination of technology with the ability to travel, with remote work, and with economic problems and political strife happening in countries that this is what has throughout history created conditions for people to emigrate to other places. And now right. we have the advantage where we don't have to get on a steamship or a sailboat and like go for months across the ocean to get somewhere and mm -hmm. then live there forever. It's like we can choose to come and go. We can have mobility. And so do you think that these are the reasons why more people from the U.S. Um, are looking for like, what do you think people are looking for and where can they find it in your experience? Okay. So first of all, we're, we are in the middle of a giant paradigm shift. So traditionally, white collar workers would go to the office, they would do their nine to five, they would come home. And to get this good job where they would have good salary, they would have to be in a big city. So take New York or Miami or Los Angeles or Chicago or any of the big cities or Toronto, you know, um, Canada as well. 
Well, the rent and the cost of living is astronomical there. And businesses and people always thought that, okay, people have to come into an office to be productive. If we let them work from home, they're never going to get anything done and it's going to be a waste and we'll never be able to manage them. Well, it turns out the opposite is actually true. So people are more productive at home. On average, they're doing, I think, an extra 90 minutes of work a day. There's no commute. There's less crosstalk and gossip and interruption in the workday. Yes, we do have slightly different things. So if your kids are at home, that can be a challenge that people have to deal with. Um, if you have your pets or if you have different things like that. Um, but all in all, we're seeing a increase in productivity for um, white-collar work being done. So businesses are actually finding that they no longer are going to need to have these expensive offices. So a lot of um, corporate real estate, uh, commercial real estate will be closing down. Then the next step is, well, I have to have, I have to be in the city so that I can send my child to a good school. But now we're seeing that the school system has abandoned children all over the country. And they thought that children had to go to school for a good education. But we're seeing that this is not the case at all. Normally, what a child needed to learn in eight hours, they're now doing in less than three hours at home. And now in that additional five hours, they're able to use that time to be interested in different things, interest-based learning. And the child is actually um, motivated themselves to work on additional projects. So then when you combine these two things, you'll see that people are realizing that they no longer need to go to the office. They no, no longer need to have their child in traditional education, that both of these things actually work. The next logical step is, well, I, need to, I, I don't need to be in this city. I can move to uh, out of state. I can move to a cheaper place to live. I don't think that there is a big jump between that and moving overseas. So why would you then need to go from New York City to, you know, out in the suburbs in New York State? Why wouldn't I move to Costa Rica or to Panama or to Mexico or somewhere else south of the border? Why would I not move to Portugal where I can have an amazing European lifestyle at half the cost and be start qualifying for an EU citizenship and learn a new language and give my child and family an excellent um, life experience, something that's really going to help them grow as a human being. I think that we are going to see a massive exodus from traditional work environments, traditional schooling. Um, and, and in this regard, I am grateful for the coronavirus. I hate what the government is doing down to my bones. I think that it's, it's awful, the stipulations that they've put on people, especially the economics. But I'm always a glass half full type of person. And I believe that we will see some some great solutions that will come out of this um, through the mindset, through technology, through innovation, um, and through this paradigm shift. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you know what I mean? I completely agree. I wrote an article on Medium um, a few weeks ago about how Silicon Valley real estate will never bounce back to the kind of exponentially like outlier prices that we have seen historically <laughs> in like since the 50s, really, 50s and 60s. And I just saw something that said New York has 13,000 empty apartments. And like, I think that there's still a block here in the mainstream media and in corporate America where 
and the government were like, people do not get it. They think this is temporary and they don't see the paradigm shift. And I'm saying like, people aren't just moving to Westchester from New York or they're just not moving to like uh, the suburbs of San Francisco. They might start there and some people might go there, but they're like not going back to the office again, but they might not even know that yet. So it's like, then people are like, oh, well I can live you know, when their leases are up, they're like, maybe I'll get an RV, maybe I'll go to a different state or whatever. And then it's like becomes a different country. And you and I know this because we've already been through that trajectory. Like we started in one place and then we're like, oh, well, what if I did this? Why couldn't I do that? And then we continued and continued and continued for like 15 or 20 years. And it's not that we're so special or different. It's just that we fell into this way earlier Mm -hmm. um, by accident before there were even like ways to define what it was that we were doing. Like the word expat existed, but you know, it was just like, we were making it up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so, and people are, you know, with the technology we have today, like you don't even have to go open an offshore bank account, like in the actual bank, like you can do things online now, now. you can do everything remotely. And so I don't think that, I think the U S maybe Canada, I'm not that familiar with them, but a lot of the um, Western countries, but really, especially the US, it's like, they're so, um, they're so used to being the world global powers Mm. that I think that as a society, they're going to be caught off guard when there is this like mass exodus out of the country and like price, there's going to be price corrections all over. And until the cities fall in line with like, with prices in other places where people go to live in the city, not because their office is there, but just because like they like the ambiance there, but mm-hmm. they're not paying well, $5,000 a month for a closet. Correct. And we're going to see tons of um, capital flight. We're going to see tons of human resource flight. Um, and then I want to throw something else out there and I haven't heard anybody else speaking about it, but this is what I think will be a big, big, big trend And I would really encourage your listeners to think very long and hard about this. If you are working in a nine to five, there is a, in in an office, there is a very good chance that your company is being motivated to keep you on, that they can't lay you off right now, that they can't make you quit. Uh, Sorry, um, they can't fire you because of government regulations and, and different things that are in place. What I invite people to do is to be proactive about this because in a lot of cases, your job will not exist in the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months. I encourage you to be proactive and go to your employer and offer to take less money. But here is the kicker. When you move overseas, you will still be having a higher standard of living. So say, for example, that your normal salary is $5,000 a month. And in $5,000 a month, you get by okay. But if you asked for $3,500 a month, probably you were going to be the one that gets to keep your job. But $3,500 a month in a place like Nicaragua or Panama or Mexico or any of the beautiful countries that we've mentioned today, you are actually going to get a better standard of living. You're going to get more for those dollars. So I would encourage you nicely to look at these types of things because the world is changing. It is changing because of coronavirus. It is changing because of artificial intelligence and technology in that side. It is changing because of robotics. It is changing because of um, blockchain, blockchain technology. If you work anything in contractual law, um, you know, accounting, all of these types of industries are changing massively. 
So think ahead. Don't think just in what's happening right now. Think how you're going to be able to pivot, where you're going to have the best standard of lifestyle, and what you're going to be offering. Because, I mean, in the same regard as your employer is going to be able to have you as a remote worker, it's not going to be too much of a leap for them to hire someone from Mexico to do your job or to do to have someone from um, India or Bangladesh or anything like that. These guys will work for $4 an hour and they're super talented and very highly educated and they will work like dogs to take your job. So, you know, everyone is going to have to be more competitive. And I like this. I think that this is yeah. a really libertarian solution. Let the market pay for what is uh, what they want, what they value. And more creative. And I think Correct. it's more natural for people to work in things that they have like a natural inclination to do coupled with their skill set from their professional career. And that's what I'm helping a lot of my yep. coaching clients do because you can't just be one dimensional human in the new economy. You have to be, you have to set yourself apart. You have to be different so that you don't care if AI comes and takes your job or if your job gets outsourced to a remote worker in a different country. Um, and then there's also the benefit of, well, we know that there's no depths to like the greed of corporations. So even if they're closing their offices and their sales are up and they're cutting their overhead costs, like they're still going to keep looking for ways to increase their profits. So mm -hmm. their company culture might be important to them, but it's not more important than money. Yeah. So, you know, if everyone gets laid off, then so be it. But, um, there's also these other benefits besides people's, you know, cost savings, also community, which we haven't talked about as much, but I feel like we need to do another episode that's just about um, more of like the technical stuff, like the offshore banking and things sure. where people can, we'll put links in the show notes so that people can um, download some of your free books or buy your book on Amazon and get some of like the more uh, technical information about how you help people with living and investing offshore and getting those, you know, bank accounts, second citizenships, legal residency, all of that stuff. But, um, you know, one of the things that people can benefit from if they're living in another country is changing their tax structure. So you might be taking a lower salary, but you also have a lower cost of exactly. living. You're getting a higher quality of life. You're getting, you know, those people bringing your cell phone to your door, when you, exactly. whatever. And then if you're a U.S. citizen, you're getting at least an income tax credit through the foreign earned income exclusion. But if Correct. you are a non-U.S. citizen, you can legitimately pay zero taxes yep. or you can choose I've been a country with a way a lower. Years. I've been legally tax free for more than because you're years. Canadian. I can't yeah. do it. But well, actually, I'm curious if you if you have any U.S. clients that pay zero taxes, because I've always qualified for the exclusion. But yeah. I've well, there's, never, okay, so there's like, foreign I still pay social exclusion. security. There's foreign earned yeah. income exclusion. There's housing allowance. There's lots of different things, different structures. You know, we work with a lot of trusts. So who legally owns it? It's what type of assets you have. I mean, if you're owning for foreign real estate, um, you don't have to report foreign real estate. There's a whole bunch of stipulations. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, this is not legal advice. This is not tax advice. All of those types of uh, things, but as long as you're not generating income from it, you can have a nice little nest egg in a foreign property, which you don't have to report, which is none of the IRS's business. Um, as long as it's held in a personal, in your own name, not in a corporation. I mean, there's tons and tons of strategies out there. 
Like if you guys are interested in this aspect of it, well, first of all, come and check out my website, escapeartist.com. You know, the website was started in 1997. We're the largest and oldest offshore website in the world. Um, we have, I don't know, 5,000, 6,000 articles on there about going offshore on every country you could imagine. The visas, the residencies, the tax situations, the strategies. And we give away almost everything for free. Like, just come do your research. You'll find something there. Um, we also have an online bookstore where I've done, I don't know, maybe 20 special reports on specific things. So a special report on offshore banking, a special report on getting your visa for Panama, a special report on investing in gold and silver offshore. You know, these things are 20 bucks, but I mean, you're not going to find this information anywhere else. It's highly researched. A lot of it's, I work directly with the lawyer or the accountant on, so you can trust the information in there. Um, you know, and I encourage you to go into Amazon and check out my book. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Pay Zero Taxes, Live Overseas, and Make Giant Piles of Money. Super, super humble title, I know. Who doesn't want that? <laughs> exactly. I like those visuals, you know, Kristen? I like those visuals. But um, And, and there's no substitute for this primary research. Like, yeah. the types of stuff that Mikkel and I have done in our line of work, like, it's, like for 20 bucks, like a, a lot of our info is free. Yeah. You know, we have both of us do consulting and then like have these low cost eBooks. But it's like, when I think of the cost of researching one country, like I remember a few years ago flying to Cyprus to learn more about their citizenship by investment options and their tax structure and everything. And I had to pay for the whole trip to Cyprus out of pocket. Mm -hmm. I was calling people. I was basically like going cold calling lawyers, accountants, driving around the country, going to meetings. Like I actually remember walking out of one office in, um, in Larnaca and I was like, I feel like I just walked out of like a mafia movie or something <laughs> like <laughs> the setting I was in. And then I just went out onto the waterfront and like sat down got a drink and I was just like, what is my life? It's so weird. But this this type of information that you're giving people, like just to tell the listeners, um, like it's hard to figure this out. Like it's taken both of us years and years of like exactly. trial and error and personal experience. And like I've opened bank accounts and I don't even know how many countries. Exactly. And it's like the only way that you're going to know how to do it is if you go and do it. And that has a big cost to it. Or if you find one of the like handful of people in the world like, I think Nomad Capitalist definitely knows what he knows what he's talking about. Like, there's a few a few people who know what they're talking about, but those are the people who are out there on the ground doing the work. And, like, yep. not everybody wants to just go live in another country for three months and talk to a hundred different people about how to do things and then live there for a few years and find out if it worked or not. Like, those are, you know, you got to find a shortcut. So I'm glad that you're out there um, doing it. And I'm so... Uh, like interested to hear that you acquired Escape Artist because it is a website I've been reading for more than 10 years. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you found my YouTube channel. Yes, I actually, me. and for everyone out there, I was doing research on something. I found Kristen's because you were talking about, I think it was the new Nomad Visa, digital Nomad Visa uh, in yeah. Barbados or something like that. Or in Bahamas, I can't remember where it was. Uh, and Barbados. It came, Barbados, yeah, it was right the first time. And I was like, I watched the video and I'm like, how do I not know this girl? She's so smart. And look at her. Look at her trip. She's amazing. I need to get. 
So I actually reached out to you to um, to get you on my podcast, and and maybe we can do a little uh, a sneaky plug for my podcast. Yeah. Um, I host a show called um, the Expat Money Show. I've had people like Grant Cardone on my show. I've had um, Jim Rogers and basically all the big names you could ever expect in the offshore space. Um, I've had Doug Casey on and Jeff Berwick and um, lots of like really cool, interesting people. And Kristen's coming on my show in the next couple of weeks. So everybody, you need to come and subscribe. If you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you'll find or, or look me up on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever. Um, it's a lot of fun. We're, we're approaching 100 episodes, which I just can't believe is happening. But Oh, congratulations. Yeah, I was going to ask how many episodes you had. I think I listened to like 91 or something. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. we're getting close to 100 now. Um, and it's good. It's been a real growth. We just hired a new consultant to help us grow the podcast. So we're going to try a whole bunch of new things. Um, we don't even know if I should announce this, but we are securing uh, presidential candidate Joe Jorgensen for the Libertarian Party as a guest on my show. So I am like very cool, super excited. Like, how often do you get to interview a U.S. presidential ca- candidate in the upcoming election? Like, that's just not so. So that when you have a podcast, because then you exactly. get to talk to more people. Really, really cool people. So there's lots um, of stuff, cool stuff going on there as well. So come, come say hello. Yeah, let us know where, so everyone can go to uh, escapeartist.com, expat money show for your podcast, yep. anywhere else they can find you. And then I also, before you leave, since you have read hundreds and hundreds of books, I would love if you could share a couple recommendations Ooh. for people of some of your favorite books um, or ones that you've read more than once that you keep going back to for people out there who want to make their own education okay. and have their Let's own offshore I could, life. I can kind of see my books through the, they're a little bit far away. Um, I'm not going to do four hour work week cliche, things like that. I'm sure everybody chooses that or that and Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which of course I have read, but they were not the most influential books for me. I think that some really influential books for me um, was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey was unbelievable for me. Uh, reading that book, especially as a new father and a new husband, um, listening to the stories about how vulnerable he was with his own children and the mistakes that he made and how he was able to forgive himself had such a massive impact on me. Um, my mother, I got my mother to read that. I got my wife to read that. Um, that was just such an amazing one for me. Um, the four agreements, I think made me a better human being. Um, those are things that I live by on a daily basis. I probably, probably read that at least five or six or seven or eight times. Um, trying to think of big books that had an influence on me. Um, what is it? Have you read anything in the quarantine that sticks out? You know what, these days with the quarantine, because I'm working 12 hours on the computer, I'm reading tons on the uh, fiction side because a lot of my writing, I try to tell stories even though I don't write fiction. So mm-hmm. I've been reading uh, the Dresden File books. I pounded through, and this is shameful, I pounded through 18 Dresden File books in about two and a half months. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> novels. 
because I like the idea of storytelling from a first-person perspective, which I want to incorporate more into in my newsletter. Um, and just so you guys understand, I have about 250,000 people a month who read my stuff. So I'm always, like I'm consistently trying to be a better writer and take these really crazy concepts like moving to another country and getting a second passport and paying zero taxes and trying to tell the, them in a story which is easy to understand. I don't want to tell technical information because, I mean, people get really bored with that stuff. Yeah. Like, we've been on this podcast for almost an hour and a half. I hope that nobody is bored by <laughs> this conversation. I want to make things exciting and fun and tell stories and be animated and paint a picture. I want you to get a feel for what life is like like this. Um, I like doing that type of stuff. So a lot of the reading that I do reflects that. Who are the great storytellers today? Who are doing really important work uh, in the storytelling? I like to study that and then try to figure out how can I add that to this offshore space? I think that's kind of part of my superpower. I don't know. You tell me. I went to um, a travel writing workshop with Rolf Potts in Paris last summer. It got canceled because of Corona, but mm. um, I think that that's, you know, travel and writing go hand in hand and everything is remote now. So like written communication, this is all very important and people would benefit. Everyone would benefit by improving their writing skills. Sure. Um, I really like, there's a book on writing by Stephen King. And, um, shoot, what are the other ones? Yeah. Talk about a master um, of storytelling, read his dark tower series. And like, he's Stephen King is Stephen King for a reason. Like there's no question yeah. about it. I mean, it's unbelievable. And he has a cool story because I didn't know this, but I read some bio about him and I think he was writing for like 18 years before he got his big break. Amazing. And so, you know, it's all about the journey, guys, with travel and with business and with life. <laughs> we didn't get to talk about any of your failures. So we'll have to have you on again. But, um, you know, funny, just but it's lots of ride mistakes. the wave, Don't worry. <laughs> go on the journey, like up, downs, like there is really no destination. It's like once you get there, there's you move the needle. So you got to just keep going yeah. and and keep improving and, and keep um interacting with people, live, love, learn, all that great stuff. Exactly. Well, it's cliche, but it's true. It's true, it you know. We'll link to all of the resources that you mentioned and some of your freebies and your book in the show notes. And thank you so much for uh, sharing your travel stories with us. And uh, I'll see you soon on your show. Perfect. Thanks so much for your time, Kristen. I really appreciate it. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and remember to leave a review for the podcast wherever you listen and share this episode with someone you think it might help. And to further support the podcast, plus get tons of access to exclusive behind the scenes content, consider becoming a Patreon patron. For just $5 per month, you can enjoy early access to preview my YouTube videos, get exclusive patron-only posts and personal updates that I only share on Patreon, join my private monthly live streams and live Q&As, and get behind-the-scenes access to private, unlisted live podcast interviews or Zoom video recordings 
that are only available to my patrons. You also get the ability to vote on upcoming videos and podcast guests and can submit your questions for our guests directly. You'll also get discounts on merch and swag and many more surprises on deck throughout the year. And again, you can become a patron for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash traveling with Kristen. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash traveling with Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N. And thank you for your support.